Hello, everybody, and welcome to Shalom's Bias, Medicine and Other Curiosities. I'm your intrepid host, Zach Berger, and the point of this program, as all other programs, is to talk to somebody who interests me, um, either in their life or what they're doing, or both. And I have a, the great opportunity today of talking to Maggie Debris, who is a poet, um, songwriter, prose writer, and for many years, um, an emergency medical technician, an EMT, in the wild and woolly universe of Manhattan. And so thank you so much, Maggie, for, for talking to me today. Oh, thank you so much for asking me, Zach. Um, and you are um, working on a book about uh, comprising poems about your experiences as an EMT, is that right? Yeah, it's actually um, a book about the hospital I worked for for over 20 years, St. Clair's Hospital. So it's in poetry, kind of a nonfiction, almost um, history, but but much more personal of the hospital from the time of its founding in 1934 until it got closed in 2007. Um, and and what what sort of a place was it? It was um, it's kind of a dump, actually. Uh -huh. It was a small hospital on 52nd that if you talk to people in Midtown, most people wouldn't have heard of. Um, and it was always poor. When I got hired there, they had just come out of bankruptcy. And we had no, um, we didn't get issued uniforms. We got paid less than everyone. But it was really the top place for a paramedic to work. It was a great place to work. And it just had this um, under-the-radar great feeling to it and ended up you know it did quite a few amazing things we opened the first uh, dedicated AIDS ward in the city which was pretty amazing at the time this was in um, 85 when they were still dumping food in front of the AIDS patients doors because people were afraid to go into the room yeah um and what, what made it a, a great place to work as a paramedic? There were a bunch of things. Um, it always, from the time the paramedics were founded, it had one of the first paramedic units in the city. It attracted a certain type of person who had a lot of um, independence. And there was no, because we were so poor and we had weren't paid much, there was very little supervision and very little, uh, um, what's the word, like uh, focus on rules and regulations and a lot more focus on what the original mission of the hospital was, which was kind of to serve the poor people. And Midtown had, at that time, a lot of homeless people and drug addicts and just people who weren't going to bring money into a hospital. And, and were, you were helping them by, you know, resuscitating them or by just being there for them or getting them to the hospital? Or what, 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 what did you find yourself doing most as a, as a paramedic? As a medic, you know, especially for the homeless people, um, a lot of it was how we treated them. We would get called because someone got drunk and passed out or, you know, sometimes got stabbed or there, there were a wide range of calls. But these were people who um, normally, and even 
myself in my normal life, you would just not even see because there are so many of these very poor people with no place to live and people just stepped over them. And I felt like for me as a medic, the difference I made much more than the medical care or, you know, any specific um, treatment was to actually be able to see them as people and get to know them. We brought them into the hospital. They were, at St. Clair's, everyone was treated the same, I'd say, which was not great if you were really rich, but it was nice if you were homeless because the level of care was higher than it was other places and the level of respect. That's a great point. You know, I think when people talk about trying to give the same care to everyone, you know, I think for, I mean, first, obviously, it's all about, like, what does it mean to have, get good care? And that's a huge question, right? But then the main's like, right. and then the second question is, like, does that mean you're getting more than what you would have gotten elsewhere or less, right? Exactly. And, and I feel like the big name hospitals sometimes give too much care to the rich people and not enough care to the mm-hmm. poor people. Um, and somewhere there's a golden mean. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's hard to care for um, for poor people, especially homeless poor people, because they're not the grateful poor. Yeah. You know, they're, they're like often very defensive. Um, they've been kicked around a lot. Right. And, you know, and it's hard to tell what is actually going to help them. And sometimes they're sometimes they're unpleasant, and they have justified distrust of the healthcare system, right? Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, we would pick up the same um, homeless guy in front of the port authority every single day for years. Take him over to St. Clair's. They'd wash him off, sober him up, give him a meal, give him new clothes. He'd go out, and within 24 hours, he looked exactly the same as he had before. Yeah. And what did that make you feel when you, like, I remember having that feeling the same people in the emergency room in Bellevue. Like, what did that make you feel when you saw the same people and over and over again? It was hard to fight the, um, just ended up getting calloused and just thinking, oh, it's him again. Yeah. And yet I knew that I would never want to be like that. Like, this wasn't a choice. It wasn't like one day he decided I'm going to go live in front of the bus terminal and call the ambulance, get so drunk that the ambulance gets called every day. But it was still difficult. So at the time, things were a lot wilder at EMS. So one thing we did with the regulars was if there was another call and it was a serious call, we'd just take them along. Um, you know, and they'd sit in the ambulance and we'd get the person who was really bad. And that kept us from getting frustrated, thinking, oh, here we are with this guy and there's someone under the train. Um, so that helped. But the, the main thing for me was I used to uh, ask people about their lives if I felt myself getting really dismissive of them. So I'd say something like, um, so what did you do before you fell on hard times? Yeah. And that changed my attitude because to know that 
oh, he was a truck driver, and he had a wife, and he liked this, and he likes this type of music. You can't really treat them like non-people anymore. Yeah. I think that's so important. Like That's what I try to do. I mean, I, I'm not always 100% successful, but when I see patients... And I, th I think I first encountered, I mean, I'm sure someone told this to me long ago, but the first impression that this made on me as a piece of advice was from Atul Gawande's book, where he talks about trying to ask every person about something they like doing. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. It's this constant struggle, because also as a medical person, you're having to... Um, really cut yourself off from people. You can't say to yourself, oh, this is the most scary moment of this person's life. And, you know, this is what is mainly for more serious calls, but you can't say, um, and I've got to get this person back, or I've got to treat this person right, or they may suffer permanent damage or death and look at their family. You have to be be disconnected from that or you can't function and yet I wanted to see people and when I'm a patient I want to be seen as a person not just a symptom or a, a case yeah there's a lot of as you know a lot of philosophy and medicine about you know equanimitas you know the balance and, and emotional distance and I, I think that's a myth you know, you can't, mm -hmm. I, I, obviously you can't be completely involved in every patient's emotions on, on that level, otherwise you'd go, you'd get unhinged. Right. But I, I think there's room for a lot more emotional investment of the type you're talking about. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. And I think it helps to keep you as a me medical person from getting burnt out if you do invest yourself. Um, and, yeah. and it's a fine line between how much is too much. And sometimes I think, you know, I was a medic for so long, sometimes I think I went a little bit over on the investment side uh -huh. because now basically I, I would think, oh, I've forgotten a lot of calls. But as I'm writing, I realize if I have even like something in my journal, like I had a man with... Um, whatever, some like small clue, uh, I'll remember everything about that call. And I kind of wish my brain wasn't full of all that. But, um, you know, on the other hand, I, I think it enabled me to be a medic for as long as I was and continue to care about people. Yeah. How, um, how long were you a medic? Well, I was a medic from 19, actually for longer than 20 years. I was, I started in 1980. Yeah. And I really worked full time till 2003. And then, um, <clears throat> you know, there were a bunch of, of things that happened, including the Trade Center in 2001 that had made me not as, yeah, I just wasn't getting the same satisfaction or I didn't have the same comfort level that I had. So I stopped doing that. Now I work as a paramedic on film sets, which is very different and does not involve the same type of patient care. Um, oh, so, so you're, no. take, you're taking care of people on film sets or you're playing the role of a paramedic on film sets? No, I'm taking care of people. Oh, uh -huh. that's interesting. 
Um, yeah, it's a, it's a nice job. It's you know, it's totally different. It's like yeah. being the school nurse. Right. I know. Or or camp doctor. Right. right. Exactly. That requires a certain level of patience, probably. I'm sure you have a lot of... I mean, I'm sure you have real injury, but I'm sure you also have some worried well people. Um, yeah. And it, it's, um, you know, it wouldn't be nice... To, uh, it wouldn't be a good job for a new medic because when you're new, you want real jobs and a lot of... You want to get your experience in. But for someone who's been a medic for a long time, it's a great job. The hours are more predictable. And I don't... You know, I don't uh, get the same type of of level of danger, which is something I wanted to get out of. I know, I know, not everybody wants to talk about this experience, so so feel free mm-hmm. to to say you don't want to talk about it. But were you working on nine eleven? Yeah, I was, and and I don't mind talking about it. Um, I was, I was I actually went down there as a, um, I was off work, and my partner was living in Brooklyn. And we had talked on the phone when when the towers got hit. Uh, actually, heard it because I live in downtown Manhattan, so I heard the plane hit the tower. Mm-hmm. And when the towers went down, when the first tower went down, we thought that everyone had been killed. You know, everyone we knew who was down there. So, and they had put out a call that people were supposed to come in. So I went in and. Um, with my partner, Steve, and we ended up down about a couple blocks south of the South Tower mm-hmm. that day. And, uh, you know, a lot's been written about it and talked about it, and it was. It changed my life, and not, I would say, not in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a real, it's a real something I had never expected to see and never wanted to see and never wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it was, an, it was a historical event. And one of my struggles as a writer is, I feel like as writers, it's our job to represent our times. And, um, and for me, that means AIDS, it means crack, and it means the Trade Center. So I... I struggle with trying to write about that in the way it really happened rather than the way that the narrative goes, which started to fill my mind, you know, right after the Trade Center, they started this narrative of this is what it was and the heroes came and this and that, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't actually my experience. Yeah. You know, not... It's it's. My experience was sort of helplessness because I was a medical student and I showed up in my white coat to NYU, mm-hmm. and there wasn't anything to do, because right. there was and, and you were you know you were among the people doing things and I wasn't doing anything and I felt I just held this complete sense of helplessness, and and I've had many feelings about nine eleven since then but never, either had the guts or the wherewithal or the coherence to write about any of it. Um, I have this feeling about stairwells. I don't know if you have a feeling about stairwells. I never had to get rescued yeah. from anything. But whenever I'm, sometimes, it, this only happens every few months or years now, but when I'm in a stairwell, I think about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it stays with you. And the, 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 
thing that I realized, because I went to a traumatic, post-traumatic group and all that, is pretty much everybody has huge amounts of of guilt and regret. Yeah. Like, Like you say, oh, I was down there doing things. Well, I feel like I was down there doing nothing. I was walking around getting dusty. Yeah. And everyone was dead. Yeah. You know, and, and then my, I know people who, who were in the collapse and were almost killed, and they're like, oh, we didn't really do anything. You did something. Yeah. Because, you know, you chose to come down, and I'm thinking, no, no. So, and I think it's very, very hard to write about in a real way, partly because you're not living up to the, the legend, you know, the grave. Yeah. The medics, the brave doctors, the right. You know. How do you write about like yeah? So you're writing about these huge topics and all, and and then it's also a personal narrative, right? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to, you know, I felt like like I counted it up, you know, in my mind, and I done probably twenty thousand ambulance calls, and that brought me in contact with the city in such an intense way that um, that I want to transmit to people. You know, I want to to actually record it and also turn it into the same, even though it was, a lot of it was scary and sad and awful, it was also, you know, magical times to me. Um, I loved being on the ambulance, and if I hadn't, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. And I loved the city, and I loved the people, and I want that to come through as well. I love one of the poems I, I read, and I don't have the words in my mind right now, maybe you could read one in a bit, but I remember one of the poems I read on your website, not about a call, but about, mm-hmm. like, it really represented this, this sort of magical happenstance or serendipity where there was this place where... I forget whether it was a bodega or some some sort of shop, and you walked in the back, and you you, you stood in front of a mirror, and a, a yep. and a drawer popped out, and you put twenty bucks in, and you got a bag of pot out, and just yep. and then and then your point was like, how did people know to do that? Like, right. how, what was that cult? And it's that sort of hidden curriculum, those unwritten unwritten practices, right? That's just right. Yeah, and common knowledge, you know, things that people just know. And it's, that's true now, you know, it's been true throughout all of time, but I'm really interested in what were those things, you know, what were the things we all took for granted, and yet no one ever told you that, and it wasn't, it wouldn't be written in any history book, but if you lived through those times, you knew all these things, and it's, you know, it's, I think that's part of what a poet or a writer does is get past the obvious into right this was what was going on this was how you capture the feel of those times yeah and i feel like a lot of that a lot of doing healthcare is like that too like there's all this hidden stuff that if you're in the system you know how it works yeah and if you're not you don't and trying to and then you can you sometimes you can give all the best instructions and talk to a boo in the face about how things are going to work. But unless you're in it, you just don't know. 
know, how did, and I don't know that I could still do it after so long, but how could, how was it that I could walk into the room and pretty much know, well, definitely know if the patient was seriously ill or not seriously ill, but also just look at them and kind of know what their history probably was, what their problem probably was, and who was this person. You know, you got this sense of being very connected to subtle elements of, of the world. Yeah, like in the in the sort of the Chekhovian sense, right? You you saw a person in the room and you knew what relation they bore to other people in the room and Exactly. And you you, you had a get I mean, obviously there's a flip side of that, like you were you were stereotyping, which has its good 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 sides and its bad sides, but you were also right. able to divine human connections. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it when I think, you know, what um for example, I've, I've been writing a lot about AIDS because that was a huge part of of what appeared when I was on the ambulance. It wasn't there when I when I began, and then it came into being. Yeah. And I remember a certain point in time when most people could tell if a guy was gay by looking at them. And you know that sounds really politically incorrect and really wrong. But I realized later what we were seeing was that um, sort of cachectic look that came from AIDS. Yeah. So many of the men had AIDS yeah. at that point. You know, and, and no one ever told you this is what gay guys look like. And now they don't. That's what's interesting is I can't look at someone and tell if they're gay. But for about 15 years when many many of the gay men in new york had aids i could look at someone and see it and i didn't put it together that they had hiv or aids uh i thought instead of oh it's a gay guy that's fascinating yeah that reminds me this is tangential but it's coming to come to come to mm -hmm. the point if you read the literature about you know jews and non-jews in eastern europe in the 1930s there's this like this complete sense of national belonging. Like you could see walks, you could spy someone walking down the street and know if they were Jewish or not, even wow. no, no matter when their clothing. And some of that was probably due to sort of cultural carriage and how people behave. But some was probably due to like a poor population, you know, right. and sort of generally malnourished and what and what they looked like. Um, yeah. Why did say? Sorry, go on. No, go on. Go ahead. No, go. Oh, I was just thinking like, um, oh, now I forgot. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, why, why did, uh, why did the hospital close? It was closed. There was a big sort of political thing. And this is something that I really also, it was a factor in my leaving the medical field is there became a profit-based motive to healthcare, which wasn't there in the early 80s or even any of the 80s or 90s at St. Clair's and about the mid 90s it started coming in and um, the Burger Commission which was uh, appointed by the governor ended up closing a lot of the hospitals right um, and one of the things that happened after St. Clair's was closed was they the, the Stephen Berger the head of the commission was in charge of what was called the Brooklyn 
Brooklyn, which also was to assess all the hospitals in Brooklyn. And one of the things they said was they recommended that healthcare go to a for-profit model. Mm-hmm. And um, I just feel like that was a mistake, like to start seeing the patients as basically dollar signs, because that's what you're talking about with customers. You don't want the customer who can't pay. Um, and that started coming in, and rather than things being geared towards, okay, we're going to you know, care for our area, even though it's poor and ragtag, it became, we have to, the bottom line, we have to break even. And St. Clair's actually was doing reasonably well because it didn't, it was a low-level hospital. It didn't provide a lot of advanced care, so the care it provided was not terribly expensive. But, um, you know, it was targeted along with really most of the Catholic hospitals. I think all of the ones in New York are closed now. Yeah, St. Vincent's was the last one, right? Or, or the last one? Yeah. And it's yeah, very... St. Vincent's was the big, you know, figurehead kind of right. great flagship hospital, and it went. I think there's a lot of, you know, I work in an academic medical center, obviously, and there's a lot of sneering, or sometimes it's sneering, but a lot of mm-hmm. looking down on community hospitals. Um, but I think, you know, they're the backbone, and they provide a lot of good care. And um, I, it's it's interesting, or or sort of pitiable, to see all the big hospitals in New York and Manhattan buying themselves up and merging and demerging, and then they're all providing tertiary care. Um, right. And you wonder. I mean, you know, I, I I hope Bellevue stays around. <laughs> you know. I know. Like, where do the poor people go, or where is, is it more important to like poor? thousands and thousands of dollars into a homeless guy when his liver finally fails? Or is it more important to provide that ongoing care for the years that he's alive and, you know, try and get him into detox or or not, you know, just care for him? Yeah. Yeah, Uh, that's a great, yeah. Let me ask about the the title of the the book you're you're working on. Um, Broke Down Palace? Yeah, it's called Broke Down Palace. And, you know, I struggled for quite a while with figuring out a title for this. And um, I was reading about something called the Memory Palace, which is uh, it's an ancient tool for remembering things. And I've been pretty obsessed with memory. My dad's having memory problems and you know, a lot of what I'm writing about is things that I'm trying to remember separately from the historical narrative so that I put my own experience and what I what really happened in. Right. And in the memory palace, you pick a building that you know really well and you place a memory in each room, and then you walk through the building to remember. Um, and I thought, oh, that's perfect, because St. Clair's was my memory palace. You know, I basically grew up there. I was there from the time I was, you know, really young until the time I stopped working as a 911 medic, which was most, you know, it was the whole growing up years of an adult life. That's, that's a great image, and it makes me want to go back and repopulate 
you know, the, the hospitals I've known. Um, yeah, it's a cool way to think of it. Yeah. I don't, because I, you know, for example, I've been at Hopkins going on seven years, and it's a great place, but I didn't train here, so I don't have those, you know, I don't have those visceral train right. memories of being up all night, and like, I don't know, my Bellevue memories are like getting a chocolate milkshake at the at the diner on the on the ground floor, and if depending on who were you with, if they thought they were cute, they would give you extra mil- ice cream in your milkshake, and <laughs> yep. stuff like that. Um, yeah, and that's what you know. Those type of things are what pull other people into your experience. I think. Yeah. Because everyone knows what what that feeling of like that total exhaustion and then having this place across the street where, you know, maybe you'll even get a special treat. Right. You never know. <laughs> right. Right. Um, can, can you read something? Do you have something at hand? Sure. sure. I'd love to. Let me just find it. Okay. So this is, uh, 1982. My realm is a jumble of mazes and labyrinths illusions, riddles, mysteries. It's fun to solve a mystery when you live amongst the gods, immortal, dealing out mortality night after night. A summer evening in New York City, a basement apartment, a young man barely out of his teens, sitting on a wet bed beside his dad. His breath smells funny, like bread. His face is finely sculpted, as if all the fat has been burned away in a terrible fire. It's a look I will later come to associate with gay men. He's pale with purple blotches like pomegranate seeds on his face and arms, so weak he can't walk. He doesn't know what's wrong with him. No one knows what's wrong with him, but I do. Buried in one of my medical magazines was an article on Kaposi's sarcoma, a previously rare and benign cancer of elderly Italians, now showing up in an apparently mutant form in young gay men. On the West Coast, doctors are calling it GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. Very rare, 452 cases in the whole United States 453 now. I wish I remember being afraid or even feeling sad for this man to be so sick, so young. But I was besotted by my own powers, proud to have made this impressive diagnosis, not yet able to see that Mount Olympus was scaled long ago, our palaces sacked, our gorges flooded with germs and sorrow. And I'm not Demeter, but Persephone, damned by the mortal pain I so carelessly consume. That is so beautiful and so sad. Thank you. And and it's really a, it's sort of a, the the poem is the apotheosis of Kaposi's sarcoma. It's very, that 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 image of the pomegranate, which like the sort of royal classic fruit right yeah like a yeah exactly as a sort of uh, the fruit of ancient literature mm-hmm. thank you there for that. They, you know there, there it was right right and I, that feeling of the the diagnosis that you know you're so proud of yourself oh i've had that feeling right, right. 
You want yeah, to... and you don't know what's what's going to happen. Like that's what's so hard to kind of get straight. And I think it, it you know, it's probably always has been. I remember when I was saying to my dad, you know, as a kid, like eight or nine, and I said, oh, oh how could the Germans let the Nazis do that? If I was there, I wouldn't have let them. How come everyone didn't know? And my dad said, you know, you don't understand. At the time, Germany was the most civilized country in the world. They gave us Bach and Beethoven. And I didn't understand. You know, I just thought Germans are a bunch of Nazis. Right. And, you know, people will say, well, you know, how do people not touch people with AIDS or think it was coming through the air? But... You, you know, you don't know until you were there. And I don't feel good about seeing, you know, about my main feeling being pride when I first had my first AIDS case. But the reality is, it was, and, you know, it probably would be again because you don't know, you can't see the future. Right, and there you are perceiving it right and, and sort of the isolation of the diagnostic eye apart from the and and cut off from the emotional resonance or reality or, or tragedy of it yeah um yeah that's well i need to i need to look at that poem and reread it and uh i, I really look forward to the the whole book um well, thank you zach and and it's really fun to talk to you and if i yeah. didn't if i didn't have patience i would talk to you longer so <laughs> Thank Thanks. you so much, Zach. This is great. Thanks for taking the time. Of course. Have a good day. You too. Bye.